This week on Viewpoints. Teenagers are impulsive. They are unable to weigh risks and consequences. And they're uniquely pliable. They can grow, they can change, they can mature. Is it ethical to sentence a teen to life in prison without parole? Then... There are so many things that are present for you if you slow down, take your time, ask questions, say thank you. The Upside to Traveling More Consciously. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. For the one standing guard. For the eagle-eyed. For the knights in shining armor. And for all those who support them. We are Granger, your experienced safety partner. Offering supplies and solutions for every industry. Committed to helping keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com slash safety, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When Ian Manuel was just 13 years old, he shot a woman in the face during a botched robbery. Thankfully, the woman survived. In the aftermath of the shooting, Manuel voluntarily turned himself in and pled guilty. But despite his cooperation at young age, he was sentenced to life in an adult prison without the possibility of parole. Once behind bars, he was immediately placed in solitary confinement for safety reasons and stayed there for several years. I've seen many people who are older than me commit suicide and just lose their minds and their grip on reality. For me, I used to fantasize about uh, getting out, writing a book, telling my story uh, to various people around the country and the world, being this big rap superstar, just anything to escape the intense traumatic experience that I was living in. In 2010, the tides changed and Manuel's severe sentence was overturned by Graham versus Florida, which ruled that any teen that commits a lesser offense than murder can't be sentenced to life without parole. In 2016, he made parole and was released from prison after 30 years served. 18 of those were spent in solitary confinement. Manuel says that too often inmates are placed into this isolating environment for minor infractions and never get out. I'm a proponent of changing the way solitary confinement is issued throughout the country, enacted around the country, and placing a cap. You know, the United Nations says that 15 days in solitary confinement is considered torture. Well, 15 days is considered torture, definitely 18 years. And I got people like Michael McKinney, Demetrius McCutcheon, Dow Streeter, who have all been in solitary confinement in the state of Florida for over 25 years languishing there. And not because they killed somebody or hurt somebody, but the way the system is set up. One write-up for anything, possession of a magazine, standing on the door, talking, extends your stay in solitary confinement for an additional six months. Those months turn into years, and those years turn into decades. Manuel writes about his prison experience in the book My Time Will Come, a memoir of crime, punishment, hope, and redemption. Looking back, he believes his life sentence was a result of the Get Tough on Crime legislation of the 90s. During this period, the government doled out especially harsh rulings in order to set an example. This crackdown primarily affected black youths from poverty-stricken areas, many of whom fell into the wrong crowd at an early age and became yet another statistic. 
But today, with around 1.8 million Americans behind bars, the focus has shifted. Ria Saha Shah is a lawyer and the managing director at the Juvenile Law Center, a nonprofit law firm advocating for children within the criminal justice system. She says Supreme Court decisions over the last 15 years have shifted toward giving greater leniency to children and teens. In these decisions, first they struck down the death penalty for children. They then struck down mandatory life without parole sentences for children who were convicted of non-homicide offenses and then for children who were convicted of any offense. So the current state of the law is that a young person cannot be serving a life without parole sentence if it was a mandatory sentence, but the law still allows for a court to make a determination that a young person is deserving of a life without parole sentence. These mandatory sentences of life in prison without parole meant judges had no say in the matter. Once convicted, They couldn't take a child's age or circumstances into consideration. But this all changed after the 2012 Supreme Court case Miller v. Alabama, when the justices found mandatory sentencing unconstitutional. What Miller said was a judge has to have the opportunity to weigh all of the things that make young people more susceptible to doing stupid things and more able to rehabilitate themselves. That's Beth Schwarzopfel a reporter for The Marshall Project, a nonprofit media outlet covering criminal justice issues. There's this line in this series of Supreme Court cases where they say something like, this is what every parent knows. Teenagers are impulsive. They are unable to weigh risks and consequences as well as adults can. And they're uniquely pliable. They can grow, they can change, they can mature. Thank God very few of us are the same person we were when we were 16, 17. And what Miller versus Alabama said was that judges have to be able to take all of that into consideration before they hand down a sentence like that. It can't be automatic. Schwarzopfel notes that the ruling in Miller versus Alabama made it clear that condemning a child to life without parole should be reserved for only the most extreme situations. What they said was if the judge really does weigh all of the factors that are unique to children, then it should be really rare to find a child who is, and this is their language, permanently incorrigible. It's only when a child, you can say with certainty that a child has no hope for being rehabilitated, only in those rare instances that a child should be sentenced to life without parole. But how can anyone really know if a child is truly beyond all help? Shaw argues that this isn't something a judge or anyone can say for certain. Everything that we know about children really tells us otherwise, that children are not, you can't make a decision about a young person at 15, 16, even 17 years old. You can't determine that they will never be rehabilitated, that they are permanently incorrigible, to use the language by the U.S. Supreme Court. That determination is really impossible. And so a life without parole sentence really counters all that we know about the rehabilitative potential of children. And so telling a young person who's a teenager that this is the person that they are, that this offense that they have committed, that they are the worst thing that they have ever done, to use the words of Brian Stevenson, that no person is the worst thing that they've ever done. Children have a lot of potential for growth and change and rehabilitation. What happened to Manuel is a prime example of the system failing to protect young people. 
He offers these words of caution for adolescents on the same road he once walked. For the people that are playing around in that life, the young kids, one of the things, the reasons I played around in that life was, you know, it was based on my environment, but also because I felt like it could not happen to me. I could not be killed. When you're young, you have this invisibility uh, mindset or that I can't get a life sentence or go to adult prison. And then it does happen to you. And you are that one standing before that judge, listening to the judge tell you, there are no second chances, Mr. Manuel, and I sentence you to the rest of your life in the Department of Corrections. So I would tell you to actually change that mindset of it can't happen to you because it can. And to the people that are incarcerated, that are looking for a spark of hope, just look at me, man. You can change, you can make things, you have to will things into existence, but it starts with you. You have to believe, as my mantra says, that the impossible is obtainable. Today, juvenile justice advocates hope to see life without parole abolished in the near future. I'm not saying that kids shouldn't be responsible for their actions, but to take a child and place them in adult prison for crimes that could be rehabilitated in the juvenile setting, it's just preposterous. I think it's a numbers game. I think we need to start by electing officials and putting people in positions that has criminal justice transformation and prison transformation as an agenda. You can read about Manuel's struggles, triumphs, and forgiveness in his book, My Time Will Come, a memoir of crime, punishment, hope, and redemption. Available now online and in bookstores. Find out more about this topic and our guests, Ian Emanuel, Beth Schwartz-Zapfel, and Rhea Saha Shah, by visiting our website at viewpointsradio.org. This segment was written and produced by Polly Hansen. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, already thinking about your next vacation? Us too, when Viewpoints returns. Oregon's Tillamook County Creamery Association produces dairy products you know and love. In fact, the farmer-owned co-op makes award-winning cheese and is now the fastest-growing family-sized ice cream brand in the country. Its commitment to stewardship informs every decision the co-op makes, and it's getting noticed. The company was recognized by Fast Company as a World Changing Ideas Award Honorable Mention recipient. And in 2020, Tillamook achieved status as a certified B Corporation. There are plenty more good stewardship examples in their newly released Good is Something We Make Together Stewardship Report. Here's Paul Snyder, Executive Vice President of Stewardship at Tillamook County Creamery Association. When COVID hit, our farmer owners stepped up with a $4 million relief fund to help support employees, nonprofits, and local businesses in the communities where we operate. And we donated 10% of September profits to the Alpha Farmer Initiative to protect at-risk farmland and provide grants to up-and-coming farmers all over the country. We've also reduced water use, made advances in cow care, and joined the global fight against food waste. The Tillamook County Creamery Association is owned by around 80 Oregon farming families and has been around for 112 years. Find out how they're a force for good in the world at tillamook.com stewardship. Hey, we get it. You don't want to be hearing a progressive commercial right now. So let us tell you something you do want to hear. 
You are intelligent. You make all the right decisions. You were smart before smart was cool, and you made it cool again. You have a wealth of knowledge, and you are so very clever. <laughs> I bet you already knew I was going to say that, you genius. There. Don't you feel better? You'll also feel better when you hear you could save big when you switch to Progressive. But I'm pretty sure you already knew that, too. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Traveling is back in full swing, as millions of people are eager to get away and relax after a tough year. Late last month, the Transportation Security Administration reported that travel is up 50% compared to last year. It's obvious that tourism is seeing a boom as the pandemic eases up, but how is this sudden uptick affecting the local people who call these vacation destinations home? As tourists, it's important to be mindful of the citizens and natural landscapes of these places. What can the tourism industry do to operate more sustainably? And how can each visitor best contribute to the local economy? While it may be nice to kick back, it's good to remember that each and every traveler is merely a temporary guest in someone else's home. You can learn a lot from places like Hawaii. That dynamic is coming, a different quality of visitor. And I didn't say more money. I said different understanding of place, a little more of a guest in the best sense of the word, a little more careful about how they travel, how they behave. Those are good things. It gives us as local people a chance to have the option to welcome them into our world. That's Miley Meyer, a small business owner in Hawaii. Meyer has been working with local arts organizations since she was a teenager and now owns Native Books, a business dedicated to sharing and preserving Hawaiian culture. Born and raised on Oahu, Meyer is no stranger to tourists. She says people who try to learn the culture and customs of the places they visit are more than welcome. But from experience, not everyone cares. This lack of understanding can cause a lot of harm to destinations like Hawaii that are more than just a tropical getaway. The other guys who are coming in just in droves really need an education about how uh, this is not Disneyland. So it's such an interesting thing as a business owner because people come in and we greet them and we offer them just to be present and pleasant in place. And many people are wonderful and many simply aren't. They're demanding and rude and they expect to make deals and they want and they interrupt. They're serious takers because they think that we're a hosting culture. We're a rooted culture. We, we were here thousands of years ago. So the idea that we can offer people hospitality implies choice. Meyer says some in the travel industry view Hawaii as easy money. They ravage the land, build massive resorts, and encourage hordes of people to visit. And once they're done, the locals and wildlife are left to deal with the long-term consequences. Looking ahead, Meyer says that this type of rampant tourism is unsustainable. 
and limiting the number of visitors may be one possible solution. It's not a new idea that carrying capacity isn't there anymore in our natural environment. And so rather than be negative about it, let's just focus on creating an experience that really is genuine and has the exchange between people living here and visitors. And so it's up to each of us to kind of personalize how we respond and what we can do. But visitors coming have to play their part. They're a really important piece of the puzzle of their own personal awareness and their own um, you know, sense of how they can participate. And positive change in the industry is happening. One way is through greater interactions between locals and outsiders. But this doesn't happen naturally. It takes effort from both sides. Brian Mullis agrees with this mentality. Mullis is an expert in sustainable tourism and says he sees a shift. More people are aware about their impact as a consumer and tourist. Ultimately, one thing that has changed, and even I'd say more so as a result of the pandemic, is an increasing number of travelers, no matter what data you look at over the last 10 years, are increasingly aligning their personal values with their purchasing decisions. So in the travel space, what that means is that more travelers are looking to ensure that their travel experiences have a positive impact on the people and places they visit, and that the businesses that they're patroning are supporting local social causes and environmental causes, given you know the state of the world in this day and age and the need to protect more lands. Mullis works with several organizations to encourage greater sustainability and awareness in tourism. These groups include Sustainable Travel International, which he founded in 2002. Their work focuses on environmental and socioeconomic development in the Caribbean, Samoa, and other international escapes. Mullis highlights that conservation has been a bigger part of the conversation in recent years, but the industry as a whole can do better, especially big corporations. A lot of multinational corporations in travel and tourism, they support good causes, but they aren't necessarily causes that are aligned with their core business models. But imagine if they started to support communities and cooperatives, nonprofits, and others that through the work they're doing, they're creating positive socioeconomic and conservation outcomes. One example from Mullis's own experience comes from his time with the Guyana Tourism Authority. From 2018 to 2020, he worked with Rewa Eco Lodge, a community-run destination. This group ensures that every member benefits from visitors as the revenue from tourism is used to help enrich the community and fund resources like education. They only need one to 200 visitors per year to visit the Eco Lodge for them to maintain their traditional lifestyles, protect the ecosystem, and preserve their cultural heritage, some of which they share with visitors and other of which they don't, which is sacred reduce out-migration so that young people and even the adults don't have to leave the community to improve their livelihoods or find jobs, even at the most menial level. So, and all of a sudden you can see, here's a tangible example of what net positive impact travel and tourism can look like. In addition to community-based groups, Mullis also ventured into analyzing the corporate world. Because of this sector's influence in the industry, Mullis says travel companies also have a responsibility in promoting environmental conservation. 
one brand, Royal Caribbean Limited, is a prime example of a corporate entity taking real action. The onboard operations for the new ships that are being manufactured, the average footprint per passenger is less than their environmental footprint in the average American home. Offshore, the cruise line also makes an effort to employ local businesses for passenger excursions like snorkeling, zip lining, and other land-based activities. These third-party businesses give tourists a more authentic experience during their trip and directly funnel money into the local economy. It's a symbiotic relationship, creating a positive partnership between the resident population and the company. At least half of those excursions that any passenger would take meet the Global Sustainable Tourism Council's criteria for tour operators as applied to the shore excursions sector so that the traveler could go with some confidence with those that are certified, knowing that those businesses are doing all that they can within their ways and means to be able to limit their negative environmental and social impacts and and maximize the positive impacts. But it's not just up to the businesses that operate in these regions. As both Meyer and Mullis said, tourists also play a role. Mullis encourages people to do some research on sustainable travel before they book a trip. Take the next step and Ask a set of questions to each individual operator of how are you maximizing the economic benefits from my visit within the communities that I'll be visiting? What are you doing to limit your negative environmental impacts? And what are some of the tangible outcomes that have been generated from that? I think asking those open-ended questions that are more quantitative than qualitative, where people have to have some background, they'll be able, if they're doing this type of work, to share their stories of impact. Along with educating yourself on eco-friendly tourism, look into the customs and culture of the destination. Venture outside the walls of the resort and discover what's past the Americanized version of the land. Meyer says that when visitors are curious and want to learn, local people will gladly be there to help. There are so many things that are present for you if you slow down, take your time, ask questions, say thank you, share, and be helpful. And so how you go and where you go, if it's with respect and care and attentiveness, you'll always be a welcomed guest. In the end, it's up to each of us to do the research and understand the places we're visiting. By doing so, both Meyer and Mullis say the end experience of traveling somewhere new will be more rewarding, not just for you, but for the locals who interact with you as well. To find out more about this topic and our guests, Brian Mullis and Miley Meyer, visit viewpointsradio.org. This segment was written by Bridget Killian. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. Cardiovascular, or CV, disease is the number one killer of adults in the U.S., and millions of people trying to reduce their risk of a heart attack or stroke may unknowingly be taking medications that are not proven, nor FDA-approved to reduce cardiovascular risk. Let's hear from cardiologist Dr. John Osborne. Many people are unaware that after a failed outcome study, the FDA revoked the approval of phenofibrates when added to statins, as the risk outweighed the benefits to heart health. 
It's important to remember that statins, along with diet and exercise, can lower cardiovascular risk by about 25 to 35%, but persistent cardiovascular risk, which can lead to a life-threatening event, may remain. I would tell anyone still being prescribed phenofibrates, such as Tricor and Trilipics, with a statin to talk to their doctor about FDA-approved therapies for cardiovascular risk reduction. To learn more and get clear on the facts, visit itscleartomenow.com. Again, that's itscleartomenow.com. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. In the world of streaming, it can seem like every show and every movie is at our fingertips. Of course, that's actually not true. Countless movies and shows are largely forgotten as the streamers continue to push for new content all the time. What is often lost are the gems of decades past, and as a film fan who wants to have a more well-rounded perspective, That can make life more difficult when seeking out great foreign films or even just American films from the new Hollywood renaissance of the 1960s and 70s. Luckily, the Criterion Channel plugs a big hole, but another more widely utilized service actually has a ton to offer on that front as well. HBO Max often centers its classic HBO library, or franchise movies like Batman installments or Harry Potter films. But it also has a deep bench of Warner classics. We film fans have been able to watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Easy Rider, Picnic at Hanging Rock, and so many others on HBO Max in recent months. Masters of cinema like Stanley Kubrick or the Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai can both be found on HBO Max, as can older classics like Citizen Kane or the original Godzilla films. For many film fans, exploring films' past can be intimidating, and Criterion Collection films can be inaccessible. To those fans, my highest recommendation is to use the TCM portal on HBO Max. It can really help you explore essential voices from the past and from around the world. I know it's helped me. I'm Evan Rook. I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years. I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea. At first, I thought it was what I was eating. I kept thinking it was stomach issues. So I did my research and talked to my doctor, and we finally uncovered the truth. It It was was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food. It can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease. So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening. But there's good news. EPI is manageable, so don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could Could I I have have EPI? EPI? Sponsored by AbbVie. 
that's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTrax Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.